Okay, let's um, let's come back together. I know some of you uh, will have met with your groups already and done a little bit of that sort of work, maybe read through uh, James and start to uh, look at the things that do uh, stick out. As I said, um, this, is, this is a book that uh, many of the commentaries will, will sort of argue it's, well, it's just proverbial, there's a, there's a series of things and take them as separate units. And in one sense, you could look at James like that. What I'm going to argue for the next uh, little while is that I think there is one big thread and if you get that thread the whole thing opens up in a completely different way uh, I think James has one single ambition and we'll see that as we, as we go through um, let me just say a couple of brief comments by way of background and just as I do this um, Tom and Chris are just going to hand out um, an overview that I've prepared for you uh, I'm really going to speak to that so you feel free to just leave it aside or you can look at it as we, as we go through if you find that helpful uh, I don't intend this morning uh, to uh, go into lots of detail about all the verses and things like that. We'll do that uh, each week as, as notes are prepared for that. Um, but what I hope to leave you with at the end of this session is a clear idea of what the purpose of this book is and see how that then can apply uh, to each section. So just as that's going around, in terms of an author, which when you get the sheet, uh, if you do want to look on, it's page three of uh, that overview. Uh, the very first verse of the book uh, gives away that it's written by James, uh, but doesn't tell you which James. Um, New Testament uh, has about four potential suspects for it. There's James, the son of Zebedee, uh, a brother of John, a disciple of Jesus. There's uh, another uh, one of the disciples, James, the son of Alphaeus. There's James, the father of Judas. And then finally, and this is our suspect, uh, James, uh, the brother of the Lord, uh, one of the apostles uh, who did not believe uh, Jesus in his earthly ministry. This is what's remarkable about this book. Here is the guy, if uh, you look um, in John chapter 7, for instance, uh, he and the rest of Jesus' family are trying to quietly escort Jesus away, thinking he's lost his mind. Uh, and yet here is the same James, who is utterly convinced, the other side of the death and resurrection of his brother, uh, that he is our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, as he will call him in chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, he is widely regarded as the author of this letter. I think the authoritative tone of it implies that it is written by a well-known and respected figure, and that's who James was. Uh, he was uh, really, in many senses, the first leader of the Jerusalem church. You could say he was the bishop. Um, uh, he, he was given, uh, in that time, James the Just, given that name because of his faithfulness and his constant prayer. And those are, those are things that will keep coming up uh, in this letter and in AD 62 the scribes and the Pharisees stoned him to death uh, for refusing to renounce his faith in Jesus Christ uh, and so that's uh, our author and in terms of who it's written to again you get that right in the very first verse uh, the first readers of the letter appear to have been Jewish Christians you've got all sorts of Old Testament imagery uh, throughout the letter uh, but also the reference he makes to them in verse 1 of chapter 1 the 12 tribes a uh, popular way of describing the, uh, the regathered, the spiritually renewed uh, Israel that was to be brought together on the last days. And you can see some references there to that. And they were the, the scattered people, the, the, dis, the, uh, the dispersion. Uh, again, which became a, a bit of a technical term referring uh, not only to Jewish Christians, but all Christians who live uh, on earth but away from their true home. One Peter does the same thing. Um, but in this case, it's their literal experience. Uh, the people he's writing to, the, the scattered 
uh, as he refers to them, are those who were cast out of Jerusalem by the, uh, the intense persecution. You read of it in Acts 8, and then you get uh, him writing to them in Acts 11, those who were spread as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So here is this early church in Jerusalem, uh, happily, a sort of, if you like, a holy huddle in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden they've been wrenched out of that. Their, their lives are really blown apart. All they had there is gone, and now they're scattered uh, throughout this world. And so he writes to them, uh, concerned that they keep walking this life of faith, uh, even in the world that they are now in, even with all the trials uh, that they face. Uh, in terms of date, uh, here's a, a real sit-on-the-fence job. Uh, the letter was written sometime before James was killed in AD 62. Uh, that's my guess. Um, uh, let me say a couple of things uh, in terms of comment on the nature of the book. Um, in one, one of the things that's thrown at James, poor James is a bit of a, um, a sort of an easy target amongst theologians. They like to have a go at the book of James. One of the things they have a go at is it's just not very personal. A lot of Paul's letters, you see the affection, his interest in the people. Uh, it's, it's worth knowing, though, that he's writing to the church at large. The church spread out. He's not writing to one particular uh, church. And so it's not surprising that it lacks some of those personal touches. But having said that, it is not without it either. It's full of uh, references to uh, the beloved brethren, uh, my brethren, uh, my loved ones. Uh, so it has plenty of that. And it may well be that this uh, general audience, uh, this is my speculation anyway, is his former congregation. So he's writing to his parishioners, but now rather than being all in forward, they've been uh, blown all out all over the place. Um, so that's uh, just a bit of a comment in terms of the nature of the book. Let me give you four distinctives uh, to look for in the book as you go through it. Uh, one is it is very strong in its pastoral exhortation. You might have got that feel already. There's some very strong statements he makes. Uh, he commands, he exhorts, uh, he encourages, and yet it is also tender and pastoral. As I said, he keeps calling them his beloved brothers. Um, he loves metaphors. He loves them. Uh, can't get enough of them. And he loves mixing them. Uh, so you'll see plenty of that as you go through. And that's well worth keeping in mind. Sometimes when it looks like he's talking about something plainly, you, you, you look at it a bit more carefully and you see it's a metaphor. I'll give you an example of that, uh, which we'll only hint at now. I'll just drop this little uh, uh, controversy and then we'll maybe come back to it a little later. Right at the end of the book, is anyone sick? Let him call the elders. Uh, I'm pretty convinced that's a metaphor. It's not talking about physical sickness at all. The whole book is about being either whole in your faith or unwell. Uh, and his point right at the end there is if you are unwell, having looked at what he's taught, come to the elders. Uh, pray about that. And then he says, uh, pray for one another. Uh, and so there's a metaphor for you that you could look at it and think, oh, it's just about going to the elders when, when you need healing, which absolutely go for it. But that's not what I think that verse is about. So there's an example for you. Um, another distinctive, he borrows from other sources. He's not ashamed to do that. Uh, borrows a lot from his brother, which is probably a pretty good idea. Um, also other early New Testament uh, uh, writings like 1 Peter and lots of Old Testament allusions as well. Our final thing in terms of a distinctive, and we'll come back to this one at the end, and that is I think there's... As I said, it's not a jumble. It's a clear, repeated pattern of sort of exhortation through instruction and then following that through exhortation through example. And so all the way through the letter, what he does is he teaches us how to live by faith and then he follows that with what that actually looks like. 
in real life. How do you live by faith? Well, let me show you what that looks like. Uh, and some argue that the letter bears a strong resemblance to an early Christian sermon. You know, point application, point application. There's a bit of that uh, going on. So there's, uh, there's just some uh, background comments. Uh, in terms of overview, uh, one of the things that James does really helpfully, I think, for his congregation, but also for us as we read as well, is that he will give us very vivid pictures of the real world we live in. This is, this is a book that lives in the real world. Uh, it's not just theoretical faith, it's uh, street-level faith. And his appeal to sort of persevere by faith is made at that level, not in abstraction. Um, and I think the picture he gives us of their real world, their experience, has a huge reflection to the, uh, the, the picture of the world we live in. Uh, what I want to do, just for a moment, you can see it there on the sheet, but um, uh, not to get overly spiritual, let me encourage you just to close your eyes for a minute, and I want you to hear his description of our world as it, as it seen throughout the letter, and just uh, call to your mind how much this is like uh, the world that we experience as we try to live by faith. Uh, the reality of the world uh, that we live in is that it is a world uh, where we are scattered away from our true home, uh, where we face uh, trials of many kinds. Uh, ours is a world of unstable people who are forever shifting are tossed and turned by the winds that they experience in this world. Uh, ours is a world that is fading away like a flower, even as we go about our business. And I think of Boston. Uh, ours is a world gripped by evil desires that lead to sin, uh, which in turn leads to death. And yet ours is a world that is showered with every good and perfect gift from heaven. A world in which we as Christians have been reborn as the first fruits of a new world that has just begun. Now, this is a world where moral filth and evil are so prevalent. A world of significant need and brokenness. Our world is a world filled with favouritism, discrimination, exploitation, injustice and persecution. Of harsh words, evil words that destroy both hearer and speaker. Now, this is a world of disorder and filled with every evil practice. A world where we and others have unrequited and damaging and evil desires. Uh, ours is a world full of boastful plans regarding the future. Ours is a world where wealth is hoarded and used selfishly and unjustly. Uh, so there's the picture of the world that James <coughs> describes. It's a world that these people have been cast out into. It's the world that we live in as we try to live by faith. Uh, but also, he says this, uh, running through the letter as well, the reality of the world is also that it is a world under imminent judgment. That's a big theme for James. Uh, this just won't carry on forever. There is an imminency to the end. This is a world with a king and a royal law, he says in chapter 2. Uh, where there's one lawgiver and judge, uh, where the king and judge is in charge of tomorrow, and where the king and judge hears what is going on and he is mighty to act. This is a world in its last days where the king is standing at the door. And so his urging to persevere in faith is made in that context, that imminent judgment. And with all of that in mind, and this is where we're going to zoom in on what I think is at the very heart of the letter, and my ambition this morning is to uh, leave you with this. Uh, in a world like that, God has a clear, wonderful, relentless purpose. 
And that's what he's writing to them about. He writes to this congregation scattered throughout a world like this and he urges them, we're told in uh, verse 3 of chapter 1 and all the way through the letter, to persevere. Stand firm, he'll say in chapter 5 verse 8, in their faith. But what's important to realise is that call to persevere is not for its own sake. He's not sort of appealing to these people now under trial. Just be stoic, stiff up a lip, keep going for its own sake. Perseverance has a purpose. It's God's purpose for us in the world. You see, uh, what James knows and what he's trying to convince us of is that even in a world like this, our God is working through all things, uh, even the trials we face, in verse 2 of chapter 1, to bring about his big agenda for his people. And what is that agenda? Well, here's the verse that I want you to have burnt into your heads and your hearts. Uh, This term, it's 1 verse 4. Uh, Here's a memory verse for uh, your group for this term. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Uh, Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. That is what God is plotting towards in this world, our maturity, our wholeness, our healthiness, our fullness in our faith in Jesus. That's his agenda. And so as we live in this world, we need to know he's not necessarily plotting towards our popularity or our financial success or our family's health or our career or our hopeful relationship, our comfort, our material satisfaction or anything else we may be planning towards. Uh, His agenda is simple, wonderful, uh, relentless, that in this world heading towards his judgment seat, he wants you to be mature, complete and not lacking anything And really that is uh, uh, an ambition that God has that is echoed all the way through the scriptures. Another wonderful example of it is is Romans 8, 28. A very similar teaching in Romans 8 to James. Uh, He says this in Romans 8, And we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him, those who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That's what he's aiming for. He is plotting towards you being more like Jesus. Uh, that's his ambition. And why is that so, such a good ambition? Well, the, the only, only way you'll be convinced that's a good ambition is you see how good Jesus is, how wonderful he is, and how kind your God is to want you to be like him and to plot towards that. And so that's his agenda that you be mature, complete, not lacking anything. And what he's working through is he's working through the real world we experience. So even the trials we face, he says this in 1-2, this outlandish claim right at the start of the book, consider it pure joy. Uh, Not the trials themselves. He says reckon it joy because of where it's heading. Where it's heading. And the only reason we wouldn't rejoice is if we presume that the trials we face are not heading in that direction or perhaps that there is a better good for us that God should be aiming for other than maturity completeness and fullness in your faith God's ambition is that through your perseverance in faith in this real world that you'll become a human fully alive, complete Uh, that's what he says in chapter 1 verse 21 and how does he do it? how is he moving us towards that maturity? Uh, Well, you see that in chapter 1, verse 18, and he'll really repeat it all the way through the book. How does he create this remarkable creature in a world like this? He does it how he's always done it. He speaks. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth 
that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. He creates new life by speaking the word of his son, the word of truth, the gospel. And when we accept that word by faith, we are saved. Are born again, we're told, as a first fruits in a dying world. But what James is going to urge us to see is that that same word that saved us is saving us. Even now, it is moving us towards uh, this ambition he has for us. The same word that uh, first was planted in us is growing in us like a tree of life, uh, he says in 121, that's been planted in you to grow to maturity. Uh, continuing to grow in you the righteous life that God desires, 1 verse 20. And so therefore, as we live in this world, buffeted by the winds of all these things we've spoken of, many trials, instability, change, impermanence, immorality, need, brokenness, unrequited desires, boastful plans, selfishness, uh, we're to persevere by humbly accepting the word planted in us, which can save us. Now we are to hear and obey the word of truth, for it is the wisdom of heaven, as he'll describe it in chapter 3, 17 and 18. Uh, but important to see alongside that is this. James is not naive uh, that that is a simple equation, that we live in this real world and there's this one voice speaking into our lives, the word of truth, and as long as we hear that, everything will be fine. He knows that there is, alongside that word, a competing word, another wisdom, competing for our attention. It's not the wisdom that comes from heaven, rather it's the wisdom spoken uh, by what James will refer to as a, a destructive triumvirate. Uh, sin, the world and the devil. Now, what's fascinating about that is that quite often over there in the morning service I'll, I'll uh, be conducting an infant baptism. I love that, I love that moment. And one of the things that I will have to say uh, to this little child is fight bravely against sin, the world, and the devil. It's a sort of a bit of a downer moment in one sense. Here's this big celebration, and all I'm saying to this little child, you have no idea of the enemies that are coming at you. I want you to fight bravely against them by faith. James is saying the same thing to us as adults as we grow up. Fight bravely against those things. Because what he will say all the way through this letter is that the wisdom that 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 triumvirate offers leads to an altogether different place. God's wisdom is leading to maturity and completeness. Uh, The wisdom of sin, the world and the devil, uh, or wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual and of the devil, as he says in chapter 3, leads to disorder and death. That's where that leads. And so James writes to his congregation scattered throughout the world, aware of that serious danger of this deadly wisdom. And he writes to say that to reject the wisdom of heaven and instead receive the wisdom of the world is to be someone who, and is all the way through the letter, is like a wave on the sea, blown and tossed by the winds. A double-minded man, he'll say. And that's a really key theme. I don't know whether you heard that as we read it. Double-minded. Literally, it means double-souled. A person who has two loves, two competing Affections. That's what that sort of wisdom produces. I'm almost convinced God's way is the best, but then there's this, the wisdom of the world's telling me this. And so I keep oscillating between the two of them, and he's going to show us how we do that, how we're unstable when we follow that wisdom, how it corrupts us, how it disorders our lives, how it causes us in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, to be ruled by unmet desires that we can't have. And so that's his big appeal. 
But then, just as we move towards the finish, let, let me say this, and this is hugely important to see. James will set up that huge competition in a way, these two competing wisdoms that are competing for our attention. Which one will you heed? Uh, he will say that, but then comes these glorious words in chapter 4, verse 6. Alongside 1, verse 4, this is the other memory verse. Uh, five words, is it? Five words that uh, I want you to have as a memory verse. Every time you feel, I don't think, I, I think I'm leaning more and more to the wisdom of the world. Here's God's answer to that. He gives more grace, but he gives more grace. As he urges us to keep going, to receive this crown of life, in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, uh, with those two competing things, realise that God will always help uh, if we are humble enough to receive uh, his word of truth that he has planted in us. And so how can we make sure that we do that? How can we make sure that we continually humbly receive this sufficient grace that he offers by his word? Well, he will speak it to us. And that will be James' big theme. You heard it through it uh, throughout this letter. Already in chapter 1 he says, don't just listen to the word, do what it says. This is God's powerful grace. To humbly receive the grace that can carry us to maturity is to humbly accept the word planted in you. That's his big call in one twenty-one. Now as we uh, close, let me say, I reckon that's really simple, isn't it? We've heard that so many times. Uh, we are a church that holds the word of God highly. We know its power. And we will say, yes, we will obey the word of God. We'll hear it and we'll listen to it and we'll obey it. Uh, we, we want to sort of nod the head at that. But I reckon in that simple teaching, humbly receive the word of truth, there is a danger, uh, one that we're susceptible to, one that James is very aware of as he writes. And here's what it is. It's all too easy, I reckon, for us to nod the head at the command to receive the word that God speaks to us at the theoretical level. But at the functional level of our actual lives, the nitty-gritty of day-to-day, Monday morning, Wednesday afternoon, at that level, we are believers in the wisdom of the world. Uh, We we sort of like the idea of the wisdom of God, but we are functional believers in the wisdom of the world. When it comes to actual life, decisions we make, how we use our tongues, uh, the factions we form, all of these things show that we're far more ensnared by the wisdom of the world than perhaps we thought. And so what James is going to do for us is he's going to call us beyond big pictures and theories about listening to God's words. Uh, He's going to call us to details and deeds. Uh, He'll speak of the real world we live in with these powerful agendas. And at the street level, he'll push us as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ beyond just orthodoxy uh, to orthopraxis. What does it actually look like when you do it? He will ask his readers, as you live scattered on the earth, away from your true home heaven, how are you living? Are the steps you take in these last days walk to the sound of the word of heaven or the word of this world? Do you live as a lover of heaven's king or a lover of the world, he will ask in chapter 4. But he will ask that of the details of your lives, not just as a general theory. He'll push us uh, where we need to be. And I think what he'll show us is uh, how easily and pervasively Uh, We are swayed by the agenda of sin, the world and the devil. But all along he will keep saying that refrain from chapter 4, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace if you will humbly accept it. And so let me uh, sum up uh, the purpose of James in one sentence for you. It's there on page 9 of the notes in the the box. Uh, James is written to believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ scattered throughout a disordered and dying world 
calling them to persevere in faith so that they may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, James writes to show believers in our glorious Lord Jesus how to persevere in faith and then what that looks like as we walk in the real world. And just over the page, the final page there, you'll see a bit of a breakdown of how I think that works all the way through this letter, that same agenda. Um, He'll dance really between the how and the what. And so you've got right in our first passage that we'll be looking at, uh, I think it's this week in our groups, God's agenda set for us, perseverance towards maturity and completeness. And then all throughout the letter, he'll dance between the two. How? Don't just listen to the word, do what it says. Okay, what does that look like? Well, when it comes to favourites, have no favourites, love mercifully. How? Live your faith, not just, not just believe it, do it. Uh, what does that look like? Well, take your tongue, for instance, use that as a thermometer to, to see how much you actually trust God. Uh, how? Get your wisdom from above, not from the earth. How? Surrender to the Lord and submit to him, not to the world. And then it'll end with this just sort of flurry of the, the practical, the, the what this looks like. It means abandoning your sense of autonomy. That's hard for us, isn't it? We love control. We love to control the, the, the path ahead of us. Uh, avoid the rot of riches. He'll nail that one particularly. He'll call us to be patient in suffering and be prayerfully dependent. Uh, it's a wonderful book. Uh, but I think as you go through it, if you keep that simple agenda in mind, uh, it will be immeasurably helpful for your group as you go through This is God's desire. Uh, it's very different to what our heart's desire might, might be, but here you have unveiled to you the very heart of God for you. Uh, and so keep that in mind as you go through it. Um, uh, one final thing to say, and that is by way of what will happen with the notes. Uh, there'll be notes for each section. In fact, Tom and Chris, I think, have got the notes for one... 1 to 18, and we might hand them out now. And each week I'll just send out the notes for each section. And my hope is that between the sermon and the notes, you've got plenty to go on with in terms of preparation. But one of the other things that we'll do is on Monday morning, uh, uh, either I or Tom will send an email with just a few bullet points of some things that come out of the sermon, perhaps of things to think about by way of application uh, when you meet as a group. Now, you can ignore them or use them uh, if they're helpful for you. Uh, but if you've got any questions as we go through the series about the notes or any aspect of it, feel free to, to give me a call or, or see me on a Sunday or something. Uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this book. Uh, thank you for a book that's spoken to Uh, those who are scattered in the real world trying to persevere in their faith in your glorious Son. Uh, Father, help us as we look at this uh, letter together to not wriggle out from under its scrutiny of us, uh, but also to savour its uh, wonderful uh, rescue that you give more grace. Uh, Help us as a church family to be transformed by what we uh, speak of together in James in these coming weeks. Uh, help us to be a church family that as we, as we reach the summer are more mature, complete, lacking less in Christ uh, than we were before. Uh, we pray this for your glory's sake. Amen. Thank you so much for uh, coming along this morning and for um, sitting through all the sessions. Uh, I'll be around if you've got any questions. I don't think we need... Do we need any... We don't need any We can leave the room as it is, apparently, for stuff that's happening tomorrow. So uh, it's good.
good news. Thank you.